I've been paying attention to what people are saying about our presidential candidates. I'm not talking, actually, about all of the negative things that are being spoken about our presidential candidates. I'm paying more attention to the really positive things that the followers of the candidates are saying about them. You know, the people who will fill an arena or a stadium or a town hall and give support to their particular candidate. I've been listening to what those people are saying. Some of them, with one of the candidates, are saying, we believe in our candidates so much we want to build a movement around this one because this one will overthrow the typical powers that be. Other followers of another candidate are saying, we are attaching ourselves to this particular candidate because this candidate is uniquely qualified, the most qualified, to sit in the seat of power. And still others are saying very positive things about their candidate. They look at their candidate and they say, this one, this one promises to make us great again. Now I'm one minute into my sermon and I can already feel my inbox just piling up. (laughs) Please understand I'm not commenting on the political candidates themselves as your pastor. I'm trying to have us see the the revelation of a condition of the human heart, that when we attach ourselves to people who are ascending to power, it reveals that the human heart has a thirst for worldly power that's insatiable. The human heart thirsts for worldly power, and it's an insatiable thirst. It happens now in this election year, but it's been happening really since the dawn of civilization. We see it actually in our text today. Verse 6, we're in the end now of our Holy Spirit series. Today we're looking at Holy Spirit and His power, and we're going to zoom in on just verses 6, 7, and 8. They're some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. And in verse 6, we see that the human thirst for worldly power is insatiable. Did you notice the question that the followers asked of Jesus? One last time they ask him, right before he ascends to the Father. In verse 6, they say, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, now will you make us great again? You see, the human thirst for worldly power is insatiable as people attach themselves to political leaders who are ascending to power. They want to be part of the new power structure. And you really can't blame the people of Israel. It had been at least 400 years that they had been out of power. Their nation was reigned by chaos, by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, now the Romans. They lived under the boot of oppression. And finally, their Messiah had come. They had seen Jesus in his ministry. They had seen him ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is clearly a political overture if you have the mindset of the people in the first century. They see him die and rise again, and he's about to ascend to the Father. So they thought they'd just slip it in there one last time. Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel. We have this mindset we humans do. If we can get our guy, if we can get our person in the seat of power, well, everything will make sense in the world again. If I can just get my candidate into the White House, the chaotic world around me will begin to make sense again. This is exactly what's happening with the followers of Jesus. Will you at this time, Jesus, it's been so long 
since we've been out of power. Now, I think I might have one tiny little glimpse of how Jesus might have felt when he heard this question for his entire ministry. I think I just have a little taste because, as many of you know, Nancy and I, we put some luggage and the children in the family station wagon every year, and we drive 13 long hours to get to Michigan. And any of you who are raising or have raised children, you know the question that comes from the back seat. Are we there yet? How long? How long, they cry from the back seat. Sometimes Evangeline will say, Daddy, are we there yet? And I'll say, sweetheart, we haven't even left Connecticut yet. We still have New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Has anyone here ever driven across Pennsylvania the long way? You know, the Roman Catholics have this theology called purgatory, which um, <laughs> I understand that you're just waiting, and you're just waiting to get through it. And I think I know what that feels like on Highway I-80 across Pennsylvania every year with my children crying out from the backseat, how long, oh Father? <laughs> After we get through Pennsylvania, there's Ohio. Then when we get to the Michigan border, we think we're there. There's still three more hours till we get to the family cottage. Sometimes I just want to whip around and tell the children, stop asking that question. And actually, I think that's kind of like what Jesus responds. When they say, is now the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Then in verse 7, he turns to them finally, and what does he say? It's not for you to know the times or seasons fixed by the Father's authority. I think I might use that this summer, actually. <laughs> it is not for you to know the times or seasons fixed by your Father's authority. I'll let you know if that works. This is what Jesus tells his followers. I think it's his way of saying, stop asking that question. Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? The human thirst for worldly power is insatiable. They thought they had their guy. They thought they had their candidate to make them great again. And they say, will you now restore? Will you now ascend to the throne? Will you overthrow the Romans? Will you take the seat of power in our nation? Jesus, is now the time. And he turns to them and he says, in his own words, in different kind of words, he says, stop asking that question. It's the wrong question. And then he has this wonderful turn of his phrase. It's the word but. And it could have been translated however. They really are asking him, will we now have worldly power again? And he says, stop asking that question. But then in verse 8, he says, but... You will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're asking me about worldly power. Will I overthrow the Romans? Stop thinking about that. But, however, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see, Jesus could have said a number of things there. He could have said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons fixed by the Father's authority, but you will receive power when Herod is overthrown by a Christian leader. Or, you will receive power when Caesar converts to Christianity and makes the Roman Empire a Christian nation. He says neither of those things. He says you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see, Jesus is offering his followers a better 
power. That word power that he uses in the Greek, it's dynamis. This is an explosive, unimaginable power which is greater than all the power the world can offer. When I think about the first century Israel story, I think it really could be entitled The Tale of Two Kings. Any of you have been to Israel, you can't help but bumping into the architectural footprint of King Herod. He's everywhere. He built enormous edifices. He had thousands of slaves and soldiers, all the worldly power you can imagine. And he built these monuments to Rome, his monuments to himself. There's this one monument. He literally moved a mountain. He had thousands of slaves take bucket load after bucket load from the top of one really big hill onto the top of another, shaving that one flat. You can still see it today. And there's this now larger mountain next to it, on top of which he built this huge cylindrical fortress, inside of which there was an enormous statue to himself. And he named the whole thing after himself. It's called the Herodian. You thought we had narcissistic leaders today? (laughs) You haven't met Herod. So he was a king in the time of Jesus with all the power the world could offer. But literally in the shadow of the Herodian, literally in this shadow of this monument to King Herod, is a tiny little ancient village called Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, another king was born, not into power, but into straw poverty, to impoverished, uneducated parents. One of those two men changed the world. The one with all the power the world could offer? No. The one who had the Holy Spirit who descended upon him, the one who had divine power, Jesus Christ, with no worldly power, only what the Holy Spirit gave him. So why then, Christians, do we think we have to get our person in power to make the world great again? It's usually not how God expands his kingdom. He expands his kingdom with a better power, with the Holy Spirit when it comes upon people like you and me, ordinary people. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, are you saying, Pastor Nathan, that God doesn't want Christian leaders in the world? No, of course God wants a Christian to be president or prime minister or whatever. But he promises in this chapter and in many others in the Bible that he will expand his kingdom with or without worldly power. You will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, yes, and Samaria. This would have been a surprise to the followers of Jesus. Jesus, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? No, but you will receive power. When my Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses here in Israel. Yes, they'd asked him a nationalistic question, really, but also over there across the border into your enemy's territory. My Holy Spirit will be upon you and them when they become my witnesses as well. You see this better power, this better kingdom that Jesus was promising would come, would be borderless. I'm realizing in studying this passage this week, probably because it's an election year, 
I'm realizing that almost everything Jesus says in these famous verses, he's really trying to correct their question. Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Almost everything he says after that, he's trying to expand their minds into a better power, a better kingdom that knows no borders, that builds no walls, that can expand anywhere in the world as long as there are people who receive the power of the Holy Spirit and serve as witnesses of Jesus Christ. This thing's going global, man. So he's correcting their question. Sometimes, as preachers, God gives us just perfect illustrations, perfect stories that can encapsulate what we try to communicate. God gave me one of those this week. As I was studying this text and thinking about how I present it to you all, uh, last Friday night I was at a rehearsal dinner for a wedding. A really, it was really a glorified rehearsal dinner. There was a couple of hundred people there. And it was at Indian Harbor Yacht Club. It was out there on that beautiful lawn there on the water. It was a beautiful evening. Everybody was dressed really nicely. And uh, it was an impressive group of people. A lot of worldly power was represented there. And I was just kind of mingling and hanging out, and I noticed sometime into the party that some new guests were arriving at the party, and they weren't coming down the main staircase there. They were rolling on wheelchairs down the ramp there along the channel at Indian Harbor Yacht Club. And I looked more closely, and I realized many of them were single or double or triple amputees. And one man had clearly been badly burned, and I thought, these must be wounded warrior veterans. And, you know, I was actually really glad when I saw those guys arrive at the party. I thought, this party just got so much better. Sometimes when you're at a party in Greenwich, there can just be a lot of posturing and a lot of trying to impress, you know, social stratification and all of that stuff. And I thought, all that pretense is just going to be cut when these guys arrive. It's hard to try to impress your friends when you're standing there next to someone in a wheelchair who was injured fighting for our country in Afghanistan or Iraq. So I saw this one guy rolling in, and the Holy Spirit prompted me to just talk to him. And so I, I found the bride who was right near me, and I said, hey, will you introduce me to that man right over there? And I looked at him. He had both his legs were gone, and his dominant left arm was gone. I learned later he was a um, victim of an IED, a roadside bomb, in Iraq. She said, sure. So she brought me over to him. And she said, Nathan, this is John. And just as soon as she said that, she disappeared and went and talked with somebody else. And I stood there talking to John, and there was this other woman who appeared next to us. And this other woman kept insisting on steering the conversation back towards the war. What was it like in Iraq? What was it like in Afghanistan? What are we going to do about the evils of this world? What are we going to do to overthrow ISIS? And I could tell that John was clearly not wanting to talk about that anymore. And so finally, he turned to her, and he said, well, you know, I, I served over there, and I have friends who are serving over there, and it's good that we keep that fight going. But, you know, since I got home, I realized there's a more powerful force in this world, even than war. And he said, I'm realizing now that I'm home, if I can just love God, love my wife and my children, and love everyone I know, if I can do that really well, I can change my sphere of influence. And if, if every Christian, if all the billions of Christians around the world could just do that really well, we could probably change the world. 
This is a man who had experienced worldly power, the destructive force of worldly power against his own flesh. Yet in coming home, he experienced a greater power. Then he turned to me and he said, I realized God saved me on the battlefield. But more importantly, when I got home, I realized God saved me on the cross. When he forgave me for all my sins and gave me the chance to enter his eternal kingdom. Then he said, do you know what that means? And I said, actually, yes, the bride didn't mention this, but I'm the minister for this wedding, and, you know, I'm going to preach on that tomorrow in the homily. And, uh, and he said, oh. He said, well, why am I wasting my time explaining this to you? There's a lot of other people at this party I need to go talk to. I said, go get them. And uh, I just watched throughout the rest of the evening as he went and had conversations with people, and I knew what he was doing. He was serving by the power of the Holy Spirit as a witness for Jesus. I thought of Jesus' words. You will receive power and my Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and someday some far off end of the earth, a yacht club in Greenwich, Connecticut. You will be my witnesses. The human thirst for worldly power is insatiable. But Jesus shows us in this passage, he wants us to stop thirsting for that kind of power and start tapping into a better power, a divine power, a Holy Spirit power, which is available to us, which comes upon us no matter where we live, when we are witnesses for Jesus. Do you know what a witness is? Do you know the signs on the trains in New York City where it says, if you see something, say something? There's two parts to that. A witness doesn't just see something and go home. A witness actually says something as well. Think of the witness on the testimony stand in a courtroom. You're saying something based on something you saw. Have you experienced the love of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the better power of the Holy Spirit? Say something about it. Tell the world like my friend in the wheelchair did last Friday night. Tap into that better power and you will be spreading a better kingdom than anything the world can offer. And together, with the Holy Spirit and his power, as witnesses, we will change the world. Amen.